well, how do we know how much difference these green spaces will make? Can, can you prove that green spaces are causing, you know, A or, or B and how, how much green space do we need and so on? Um, so I thought, you know, if there's a way in which we can put numbers onto this, maybe that will help. Perhaps that, that will be more um, persuasive than just the kind of qualitative uh, research. And I, I, you know, I understand that, that question which comes back from policy makers because they're making very difficult and expensive um, decisions about how prisons should be. And I understand, you know, that most qualitative research comes from perhaps one or two um um, establishments and they um, reasonably ask, you know, how how transferable are these um, findings? So what we did then um, in this latest piece of research was use GIS, uh, geographical information um, systems, to draw upon ordnance survey data, which we're very fortunate to have at a very high resolution for the UK, to essentially calculate the percentage of a prison's envelope, which was what the the term that we give to the area enclosed by the exterior wall or fence, the percentage of that area which is green, which is um, vegetated. And the reason for using this data set is because it can distinguish between kind of real grass and uh, astroturf and so on, and it isn't fooled by things that to the naked eye might look like green spaces but aren't. So we cal calculated the, the percentage of green space within the prison envelope for all closed prisons in England and Wales. We didn't do the um, category D estate because it's not always clear kind of where those prisons start and end, um, and also because the people who are incarcerated in them obviously by de definition spend some time um, outside and of course we couldn't really control for where they were going and what, what they, were, they were being exposed to in those spaces. So we looked at the whole of the closed um, uh, estate and we calculated then, or J Jacob did um, the maths, to establish if there's a relationship essentially between that um, percentage of green space and the published levels of self-harm and violence between prisoners and violence um, against staff, which takes place in those places. And in order to make these calculations as robust as we could, we also controlled for anything else about the establishments that we thought might influence the levels of self-harm and violence. So, for example, the size of them, the um, level of crowding, the category, the gender, whether these were sex um, uh, offender uh, specialist um, prisons or not, the age of people. In other words, are they um, white OIs or um, the adult estate? We also looked at whether the prisons were purpose-built or if they were part of um, one of the establishments which was kind of converted from an RAF base or a stately home or, you know, something else, of which there's more um, more than I thought that there, there were. Um, and having done all of that, we find that there's a robust statistical relationship that shows that increased green space in prisons reduces violence and self-harm. I think a lot of people um, in prison have, you know, experience things that would be associated with feeling empty inside. So use of substances or um, attracting a, a label of borderline personality disorder, for instance, which again is associated with that feeling empty. And there's a really nice quote from Internal Family Systems that um, adults who adults who feel empty are full of all the child's loss of love during childhood and which I think really speaks of that experience that it's something that we carry with us into adulthood if we if we don't have that sense of love. 
And whenever I think that almost for people I spoke to, it was almost easier to feel empty than to experience the pain. And but it was only buried quite quite neck, close to the surface. And a lot of people described how they would try to numb that pain to with, as you said, Naomi, with uh, substances or with cutting it off. So it was almost easier to feel empty, to not to not have to feel anything than to go there and experience that pain because it was not not an environment to do so. So given that um, love has such a central part in our lives, why do you think it's been so neglected in the in the well in the wider criminal justice system? Yes, that's a very very good question and I've as much as I uh, kind of wanted to understand why that is I don't think I'm, I'm much wiser <laughs> it's like I think there's a conversation to be had in a from practitioners from uh, from those um, in in politics from from those who run institutions and it's kind of um almost a paradigm that it's a, it's a, it's like an ideology almost uh, to to not associate this particular institution at, at prison with with love. I, th I remember the first time I was in the prison. Obviously, my hearing was high, heightened, and the focus was heightened in terms of metallic resonance. And that metallic resonance akin to protection and separation. So whether it was keys, doors, doors, keys, bigger doors, smaller doors, locks, and the gaps in between each one is regimented. Uh, and I also recognised that coming through with the door checking, which also fascinated me. So there's these gaps of silence within this metallic sonic kind of um, architecture in the, in the prisons and these incremental points of silence or things stopping usually would have been associated for me with safety. However, in the prison, that wasn't the case because every time there wasn't a metallic sound, it's because there was checking and observation and surveillance and for the potential threat. And it's the first time silence has been presented to me in a different, unique way. And I came out of the, our first meeting with, I was overwhelmed. I was very moved. I was, I did sit in my car and I did cry because I think it challenged, it challenged me to rethink of who I think I am in regards to the actions of other people. It was a very, it was a very moving experience. And I think that was the motivation for me to really reach out and want to connect with the men there in terms of having an impact with the projects that we were doing. Now, I'm somebody who spent most of my life 
kind of regressing the positions I've held earlier in my life. So, for example, <laughs> I've never done meditation um, and I don't really understand meditation. So I wonder if, as a beginning, you could perhaps explain to me what you mean by meditation. Sure. So there's a number of different definitions of meditation. The secular definition that I use is a practice or a training that leads to healthy and positive mind states. So it's a thing that you do regularly that helps to improve your mind and also your brain. The most basic form of meditation that most people learn first is focused attention meditation. So in a focused attention meditation practice, you are focusing your attention on your breath. When your mind eventually wanders away from your breath and onto a thought, you then notice that you have wandered onto a thought. You then choose to bring your attention away from that thought and back onto your breath. You know, on the one hand, it is incredibly simple, but it can feel quite overwhelming, mainly because a lot of people have a misconception about what meditation is. You know, a lot of people believe that in meditation, your mind is supposed to go blank. So, you know, you sit down, you're like, I'm going to meditate. And you sit there and you wait for your mind to go blank, and it never does. Frankly, it's probably easier to levitate than to make your mind go blank for any period of time. And then you're like, oh my God, I'm terrible at this. Like, what is this thing? This thing is awful. And you get up and you don't do it again. But really in meditation, what we're learning to do is to observe our thinking and to change our relationship to our thoughts. So we're not trying to get rid of our thoughts. We're not trying to say, oh no, you know, my mind is just going to be like this pure blank thing and it's going to be nirvana and bliss. No, no, no. What we're learning to do is say, hey, I'm having a thought. And rather than getting caught up in that thought and thinking about the thought, say, I see that there's a thought here. I'm going to just move my attention elsewhere and not grab onto that thought. I'm going to let that thought go. So you put your attention on your breath, which is something neutral and in the present moment. When a thought grabs your attention, you notice it and you thought you grabbed my attention, but you know what? I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to think about the grocery list or the, the thing I feel bad about or whatever it is. I'm going to let that thought go and move my attention back to something neutral. A thought will arise again, because that's what our brain does, it gives us thoughts, and then we're gonna say, nope, don't need you right now, thank you. Attention back to the breath. And as you do this, it's quite an incredible transformation because instead of being caught in our thinking, wandering mind, like most of us are, most of us just think the thoughts in our head because they're there, and so we presume we're supposed to be thinking them because they're in our head. But when you actually do this practice of saying, hey, I see that there's a thought there and I'm not gonna think it, I'm going to choose to do something else. In that instant, you have changed your relationship to your thinking. And you now have control over the contents of your own mind. And so you don't have to be um, as haggard and bothered by the often repetitive, negative, frustrating, you know, misguiding thinking that goes on in your head because you have a mechanism of shifting out of that and changing the course of your thoughts. We we used um, the sycamore tree at Brewer House in the medium scale unit, which I know a lot of prison listeners will be aware of because Sycamore Tree is, has always been delivered within the prison estate before, but we had a rare opportunity to deliver it in the mental health setting for the first time. And we had fantastic engagement, but what we also found was that our patients were of, sometimes needed a stepping stone towards Sycamore Tree, that it was, it, they needed more preparation and also that was often because they were more still focused on their own victimization, their own trauma, and not yet ready to think about the victimization of others. And so in order to do that, we 
uh, I was aware of the Kintsugi notion and we developed this six session college, recovery college course in co-production and co-delivery with, with um, a fantastic group of, of uh, peers trained in the recovery college model. And the structure of the program is uh, uh, the first week is obviously everyone signed up to it. They know what it is that they are contributing to them. The language also changes. They aren't patients, they're learners, um, as, in the, as in Sycamore Tree. And the first week introduces them to the concept of Kintsugi with video material and also the, the adult modeling clay that will be used to build their object. And then in the, and they're asked to think about what they might want to create to represent either themselves or some aspect of their journey. And then in the second week, they make the object that they want to represent themselves. And then in the third week, they decorate it with um, alkaline, non-toxic uh, paint. And then in the, the, the following week, the fourth week, they break the object. And they know this is going to happen, they sign up for that. But it's, it's done in a way where each person does that and is held in the group by that experience because it can be very powerful and very patients very reluctant to do it. And we found particularly the women who have participated breaking something that they've created, that they have, no, have seen, they've created something beautiful and now they need to break it. And that's hard. And then in the fifth week, they repair with non-toxic alkaline glue and use the, the gold dusting to, you know, the, the, the um, I think it's eyeshadow actually that we use to, to create the effect of the gold. And then in the final week, reflect together upon their experience of going through that. And in a way, it's actually stealing from occupational therapy where there's this principle of, of, of doing, doing with. So we, it's, it's suitable for patients who may not be particularly verbal because their participation doesn't require them to say a word. If they just do the process, there is something alchemical that may happen. But of course, we cater for patients who can't, can participate at varying degrees and include a workbook where they can work in a more private space to reflect on their experience that they may not share with the other participants. That's a really beautiful way of, um, of working with that concept. I mean, I love the concept anyway, but you also use a quote in one of your chapters, which was remorse is related to the theme of human redemption and renewal. And so it's ultimately an emotion of hope despite its darkness and pain. And I, I think, you know, that really comes through as you speak about those workshops. You can, can hear that those could be something that could fundamentally be very deep, but end with something that's very uplifting. 